All right, this is Dr. Tully for History 327. Uh, today we're going to be talking about JFK, LBJ, and a little bit about Vietnam, a little bit about Vietnam. Um, you know, kind of a kind of a transitional thing we're talking about. Last class we talked about the civil rights movement. We talked about how uh, you know the, the kind of the early civil rights movement, kind of the the, the ground the groundswell starting to to really get going, momentum starting to build. And I kind of tease at the end that the election of 1960 has a lot of this youthful, possibly change energy going on. And that's absolutely the case. That's absolutely the case. So why don't you go into uh, Moodle, get that PowerPoint, get that, uh, well, it's technically a Google slides, but that's okay. And go over to JFK, LBJ, and NAM, and go over one slide. You'll see the new frontiers, man. Uh, we're talking about uh, Kennedy first. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, JFK. Uh, he comes from a very large politically active family. He comes from a very large politically active family. If you go over one slide, you will see his family. That's just his dad, his mom, and his siblings. Um, he is Catholic, and he's, he's the type of Catholic that has a lot of kids. Absolutely. Uh, uh, Ke Joe Kennedy Sr., uh, Joe Kennedy, Joseph Kennedy, that's his father. Uh, his parents are Catholic. They're very active in democratic politics, absolutely. Uh, his father, had uh, Joe Kennedy, had been a, a lot of different things. Uh, he was the first director of the Security Exchange Commission, the SEC, not the Southeastern Conference, but the one that regulates stocks and whatnot. Uh, that was a bit of a, a bit of a, what's I'm looking for here? There's a bit of a kerfuffle about that, a little bit of controversy, uh, mainly because Kennedy was accused for a long time of being a kind of a crook, kind of a, a Joe Kennedy, not, not the son, but the father, Joe, Joseph Kennedy, what's considered to be a little bit of a crook, a little bit of like, you know, it's like asking the fox to guard the hen house type of things when it comes to the SEC. Uh, not like a steal people type of crook, but like insider trading type of guy. Uh, there's also rumors that he was a bootlegger, probably not a bootlegger. Uh, the later job that uh, Kennedy has, Joseph Kennedy has, is he is the United States ambassador to Britain. And that's a pretty big deal. Uh, that's a very, very big deal uh, when it comes to ambassadorships. That's probably the most prestigious of all the ambassadorships. Mainly because the uh, U.S. ambassador to Britain, I mean, we rarely, if ever, have wars with Britain, at least in the modern era. That's our one of our oldest allies. Well, not as old as France, but, you know, the U.S. and uh, the Great Britain state are said to have had a special relationship. Yeah, they're very close, very, very closely allied now. And that's a very high prestige job, is to be the U.S. ambassador to England. And that's basically what his father is. Uh, like you see, you see a multiple multitude of children. Absolutely, uh, you got you got Joe Kennedy, Jr., who's eldest in the center there. You got uh, Jack. Well, sorry, he's on the right. Jack Kennedy, um, John Kennedy is there in the middle. You see Teddy right next to him, and then uh, sorry, Robert right next to him. And Teddy's on his daddy's lap, and then you see the daughters. Absolutely, they have quite a number of children. I believe there's like nine Kennedy children. There, there's quite a bit of them. And um, actually, Joseph Kennedy Sr. really wants his son to become president. He is very keen on his son becoming president. He thinks that's going to give legitimacy to the family. Uh, remember, they are a Catholic family in a time where Catholics are still seen as kind of the others, uh, not fully, quote-unquote, American, uh, seen as not fully suspect, but there's a little bit of... Uh, by them, by most, you know, waspy white Americans. And so Kennedy is very insistent that his son becomes president, tries to give him everything that he can. 
Uh, thing is, that's not John Kennedy. It's actually Joe Jr. Joseph Kennedy Jr., uh, Joe Jr., he's the one that his dad really puts the pressure on to become president. If you go over one slide, uh, you're going to see Jack and Joe Kennedy. There's John Kennedy there on the left. There's his elder brother, Joe. Uh, yes, I'm going to call him Jack and John Kennedy interchangeably. His name is John. Everybody called him Jack. Go figure. Uh, Joe Kennedy is the one who's really pressured to become president. He's the, he's the eldest son. He's his father's namesake. He's the one that his dad believes is going to be the real uh, real hero of this all. You know, he's the one who's going to really bring honor to the Kennedy name. Uh, that ends up not really happening because uh, jo Joe Kennedy Jr. dies in 1944 as part of World War II. Uh, when he dies as part of World War II, that kind of puts all the pressure on John. Now, John Kennedy during World War II, uh, he does serve in the Navy, absolutely. If you go over one more slide, you will see him on his famous little patrol boat, PT-109. Uh, this is in the Pacific. He's serving in the Pacific. He's in a patrol boat. And basically, this patrol boat gets attacked by the Japanese. Uh, they, they shoot it up, and basically, uh, John Kennedy has to, like save his crew, he's, he's shipwrecked for a while, he ultimately does get saved, does suffer a lot of injuries though, he gets shot a couple times, uh, really destroys his back uh, in World War II, absolutely, but he still gets most of the crew to safety, uh, he is hailed as a hero, he's hailed as a hero for this, I mean he's of this younger generation I should mention, <coughs> uh, he's born in the 20s, he is very much a uh, uh, part of this younger, uh, younger generation, uh, you know, the ones who are children during the ones who are children during the Roaring Twenties, and you know, are, are well, they're babies during the Roaring Twenties, and you know, children and young men, young young teenagers during the Great Depression, kind of this new, you would call them nowadays the greatest generation, the World War II generation, kind of these young people who get involved with that. And, and, and Kennedy is seen as theoretically the best of them. He's seen as theoretically the best of them. Uh, he, he is having the most to offer for this, for this new generation, for Americans. Uh, he is first elected to the House of Representatives in 1946 when he's like 29. He's stupid young. Uh, he's born in 1917. I believe he said he was born in the 20s. Uh, it, it's his brother, uh, Robert, who's born in the 20s. He's born in 1917. He's elected to the House of Representatives as a very young man, <coughs> pretty much exclusively off of his father, pretty much exclusively off his father. Uh, likewise, he gets elected to the Senate for Massachusetts in 1952 when he's like 35, which is about as young as you can be to become a senator, absolutely. He is very young, and he doesn't really accomplish all that much. He doesn't really accomplish all that much as a, uh, as a, as a senator. That is no... <laughs> That's really not that much of an insult to him to say that he's not very accomplished because he's, he's very young. But still, it's, it's very much a hopeful generation. He's going to become later the first president who's born in the 20th century. All the other presidents were before Kennedy were born in the 1800s in some form or fashion. So he's part of this new generation. Doesn't accomplish very much, but still hailed as like, hey, he's got a lot of things going for him. Uh, the Democrats even consider putting him on the VP ticket in 1956. Uh, they kind of murmur about, uh, you know, maybe we'll add him as a vice president to help out our candidate in 1956. He's probably Adelaide Stevenson, who you don't really need to know about him, but 
just know that Eisenhower is getting like these massive, ridiculous victories. And, and the Democrats decide, you know what? Kennedy's a little too special. We should hold off on him for a little bit. Um, we don't want the taint of him losing a, a, a national election for whenever he inevitably is going to become president one of these days. I should also mention that it was pretty clear that Kennedy was going to run for office at some time. <clears throat> Maybe not 1960 for president. Uh, he, w- he would still be considered a little young. But everybody knew. He was, he, he's one of those people who people consider to be a president and waiting. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see him and his family. Uh, he marries Jacqueline uh, Bouvier, Jacqueline Bouvier, <coughs> who is seen as a kind of a... A bit more than just a trophy wife. Uh, she comes from a fairly well-to-do family as well. They have two children, uh, Caroline and John John, uh, John Kennedy Jr. Um, she is actually pregnant with another child during the election process. Uh, ultimately, she does lose that child, uh, the third Kennedy child. But uh, pretty much you got John John and you got Caroline Kennedy. Um, Kennedy himself, he's a bit of a philanderer, a bit of a philanderer. I guess I'm not going to get into this later, so I'll talk about it now. Uh, he's never particularly, um, faithful to Jacqueline. He was never really faithful to her before, uh, and he certainly wasn't faithful to her afterwards. Uh, pretty much her mindset about this was, if I don't see it, um, that's about as much as I can hope for. So... That said, a pretty interesting case, and I do need to mention that, you know, Kennedy is seen as a very attractive individual. He's quite handsome. Uh, The idea that we might have young children in the White House is very appealing. Um, That's super appealing for for a number of reasons, is that, uh, you know, he's a young individual. The idea that he might have children or has small children... Generally, people who have small children don't lose presidential elections. That's just one of those weird realities of politics. Um, people like the idea of small children in the White House. That's, that's, I don't know, people just seem to like that. Voters seem to like that. So by the time we get to 1960, if you go over one more slide, uh, Kennedy is fighting for the nomination. Even though he's very young, he would be our youngest elected president. Uh, he's not. He wouldn't be the youngest president, period. That honor goes to Teddy Roosevelt, who is like 40, whenever he becomes president after uh, William McKinley is assassinated. But he uh, by this time, uh, Kennedy is like 42, 43, uh, when it comes to 1960. And so he's, he's very young, and he's fighting for the Democratic nomination uh, with Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Lyndon Johnson from Texas, we'll talk about him much more later. You see him there in the center, in the white tuxedo. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Baines Johnson, he is from Texas. And also Stuart Smith... Um, Symington from Missouri. Stuart Symington from Missouri. That's the dude on the far left. That's the dude on the left. Pretty much the three of them are competing are competing for the Democratic nomination. Uh, the Republicans, we'll talk about them in a second, but the Democrats, you know, they, they had had the Franklin Roosevelt and then Harry Truman. It's like, maybe we should have a sea change. Maybe people, you know, we can be not just the powdery party of Roosevelt. We can move on from that. Um... There is a bit of a fight between the three of them for quite a while. The person who ultimately gets the nomination, though, is Kennedy. Kennedy ultimately does get the nomination because he is young and charming. He has small children. He's handsome. All these things we talk about. Uh, In order to shore up the Southern vote, though, because Kennedy is a Massachusetts elitist. He comes from, you know, the the Kennedy family is quite wealthy, Harvard-educated, you know, all this stuff that... 
may not appeal to John Q. Voter, and especially those in the South who are, make up the bulk of the uh, membership of the party, but not necessarily the leadership. I'd uh, really Southern, <coughs> excuse me, really to, uh, shore up Southern support. Uh, Lyndon Johnson has chosen to become its vice president. Uh, Lyndon Johnson has chosen to be the vice president. Uh, Lyndon Johnson, yeah, we'll talk about him later today. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's never too fond of Kennedy. I mean, he likes him okay. Um, especially after Kennedy dies, he is adept at using Kennedy's legacy. Uh, but you can definitely see that, like, Johnson feels a little insulted that, you know, he's having to play second fiddle to this young pup who's done nothing whereas Johnson was a pretty established figure with the Democratic Party and accomplished a ton of the Senate when he was a senator. So that's who it is for the Democrats. For the Republicans, they go with Richard Nixon, uh, a name that you should be very familiar with throughout this class. If you hear one more slide, you're going to see youngish Richard Nixon. Uh, Richard Nixon has a bit more experience than um, Kennedy when it comes to doing things. You know, Nixon had had a long history as he had been vice president, for instance, under Eisenhower. However, um, Eisenhower doesn't really like him that much either. <clears throat> Whenever Eisenhower was once asked um, if he could name Nixon's accomplishments while vice president, Eisenhower reportedly said, uh, give me a week and I'll get back to you and I might be able to think of something. Uh, pretty much Nixon does not really distinguish him very much. Still, Nixon also, I mean, it's weird to talk about Nixon this way, because when you think of Richard Nixon, you probably think of, you know, this, uh, you know, Watergate, corrupt individual, you know, liver spots, he seems awful. But in this time period, in 1960, uh, Richard Nixon is kind of a young eagle. He kind of a young legal eagle. Uh, he's, well, not really legal, but he's a young individual, too. Kind of cut in the same mold as Kennedy. I mean... Nixon was also a Navy hero. Uh, Nixon also had small children. Uh, you see his kids right there. Uh, Nixon was also in his 40s. You, you don't think of that, but Richard Nixon's only four years older than Kennedy. So he's about 46, and, um, Nix, uh, and Kennedy is 42. And so... <coughs> geez, I'm sorry, I'm coughing. And so the Republicans pick Nixon. Nixon, remember, he's the more conservative figure. Uh, he's seen as very much an anti-communist figure, you know, maybe gives some more rigor to the Cold War. Uh, that's something that's always questions about Kennedy is, you know, will he be able to stand up to the Russians? Uh, yes, he's been in a war, but he hasn't really done with that much in politics. Um, whereas Nixon had done some things. He had, you know, interacted with Khrushchev and stuff and done things as vice president uh, with Russia so it seems like Nixon has a bit more experience. And so, but still, it's a very kind of hopeful election because it's two, we're guaranteed to have our first president born in the 20th century, no matter who wins, Kennedy or Nixon. They're both young. They're both World War II fighters. They're both people who fought in World War II. Uh, part of this young generation, greatest generation, we call them now. But uh, yeah, and so this is kind of this really interesting energy that's going on to their first debate. And their first debate is going to be televised, which is going to be quite a big um, element of it. Television was still a fairly newish medium during this time period. Um, very much came of age during the 50s. Prior to, prior to like 1950, 1951, uh, less than 10% of the U.S. population owned television. By the time we get to 1960, about 90% of the U.S. population owns a television. So it very much has exploded in popularity, very much the new medium. 
And now we're going to have our first televised debate. We're going to have our first televised debate between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy. Now, this debate is going to be pretty interesting because it's kind of a sea change for what happens uh, in politics going forward. This debate is televised. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see a picture of it. There they are, their televised debate. Uh, one of the few pictures where Richard Nixon looks decent. Uh, the problem was Richard Nixon, during this debate, he's kind of sick. Uh, he's kind of sick. He has a little bit of a cold, which is no big deal. I mean, I have a little bit of a cold right now. I'm coughing here and there. And so even though Nixon, it's interesting. If you look at the, uh, the polls about who people felt won their debate, those who listened on the radio said that Nixon won. Those who listened on the radio said that Nixon won. They said Nixon's ideas came about a little bit better. You know, his, his actual content of what he said uh, seemed to resonate a bit more. But if you watched on television, Nixon had this like post-nasal drip going on. Actually, similar to what I'm going through right now. And so he's wiping his nose quite a bit. He looks kind of uh, pale. He looks like he's sweaty because he's under all these lights. As opposed to Kennedy, who looks very cool, very collected, um, conventionally handsome. I'll, I'll say that. I mean, looking at the difference between Nixon and Kennedy in that picture, one looks like a, a model and the other one looks like Richard Nixon. That's nothing about their politics. That's just, that's just how they look. And so the, the, the real appearance of Kennedy becomes his real selling point. You're going to hear this period called Camelot. You're going to hear this period called Camelot, this very idealistic part of the 60s where everything looks just wonderful. You know, you have this young, um, handsome president, his glamorous wife. They have small children. They seem to have the perfect life. It's ironic because, in reality, uh, health-wise, Kennedy's in really bad shape. Uh, health-wise, he might be one of our sickest presidents we ever had. He had a number of really debilitating diseases uh, in addition to his injuries that he sustained in World War II. Uh, for instance, his back, as I mentioned, got really jacked up after PT-109. Uh, he was never able to sit in a regular chair. Like, as president, he would normally sit in a rocking chair, which would help with his back. Uh, if you ever see pictures of him with his children, he never picks up his children. He was unable to pick up his children because his back was just so torn up. Uh, you'll see him, like, holding on to his kids while they're on the ground. Uh, he had other debilitating diseases, uh, Addison's disease, Huntington's disease, all sorts of... I'm not going to get into what they, they are, but he's a very sick individual, just, just health-wise. And he's also on a lot of medications just to help him sleep, help him like deal with some of the anxiety and stuff, which nothing wrong with tainting, you know, anxiety drugs. But uh, this is something that the public is very much not kept in the loop about. You know, they don't realize just how sick Kennedy is, just how medicated he is. They just see this facade of a very good-looking individual. So the election itself is quite close. The election, the election itself is quite close. But Kennedy just barely wins the popular vote by two-tenths of a percent. By two-tenths of a percent, Kennedy wins the popular vote. But of course, this is the United States of America. Does that matter? No, it does not. What matters is the Electoral College. Uh, Kennedy wins the Electoral College thanks to some, um, how do I say this, some interesting voting patterns in Texas and in Illinois. Um, both of those, we can do conspiracy theories. I'm sure we're going to get to it to the, when we get to the Kennedy assassination. 
Uh, spoiler alert, the guy's assassinated. If you, know, if you don't know that Kennedy is assassinated, welcome to reality. You should have known that already. Texas is almost ex- probably because of uh, Lyndon Johnson's influence. Uh, the thing is with Kennedy, he's never really able to get the South. The South never likes Kennedy all that much, uh, particularly once he starts doing things for civil rights. But even in 1960, the South is a bit wary of Kennedy. They're a bit wary of Kennedy. The idea of this kind of, you know, this liberal elite coming in and telling them what to do, even though it's part of their own party. And so I'm not saying they're going to vote Republican in the 60, but they probably wouldn't have gone as much as they do. But I'll tell you right now, Kennedy was never very popular in the South. Never very popular in the South. So because of this very limited margin of victory, he doesn't come in with much of a mandate. He doesn't come in with much of a mandate. Uh, However, whenever he's inaugurated, you'll go over one more slide, you'll see his inauguration. He has a very optimistic inaugural address. One of the most famous inaugural addresses where he kind of taps into this youthful energy that uh, that he really embodies has that wonderful phrase you've probably heard? I know you've heard it. Ask not what your sorry. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for this country. That that sort of you know youthful optimism. This kind of idea that maybe we can change the world. That type of in, uh, that type of mindset. Um, likewise, later on, he's going to say we're going to go to the moon. You know, he's like by the end of ten years, I want to put a man on the moon uh, as part of the space race element, which I didn't really talk about earlier, but. I'll talk about that really quick. Uh, hey, Russia lost a sa- Russia lost launched a satellite named Sputnik, and people freaked out about it. And then we started sending humans into space. And then Kennedy's like, "Hey, why don't we send a guy to the moon?" Which, honestly, the more you think about the fact that we got a guy to the moon in the '60s is just nuts. Like we had no computers back then, and I'm just I'm just amazed by what they did. It. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. We landed on the moon. We clearly landed on the moon because if there's even a hint of that being framed or are faked, the Russians would have like blown it apart years ago. Speaking of the Russians, uh, the issue is the Cold War. <laughs> Nixon is thrust in, not Nixon, Nixon is not, Nixon's not president, not yet. Kennedy is thrust in almost immediately to the Cold War. Uh, pretty much as soon as he's inaugurated, he gets thrown into the Cold War. Uh, he meets with Khrushchev fairly early. Uh, Khrushchev, he's a new Soviet leader, uh, he's a little bit different than Stalin. He's kind of a farm boy in his background. Uh, he also mentioned, like, yeah, Stalin made some mistakes, which is something that Stalin would have never said, that Stalin made mistakes. Still, he is a bit of a, you know, he's still a Russian at the height of the Cold War, so he is saying things like, We're, we will bury you and threatening nuclear launches. So in Vienna, Khrushchev and Kennedy meet. You'll see them meeting right there. And basically what happens is Khrushchev thinks, okay, this this kid is young, he's a nobody, I can bully him, and I can bully him almost immediately. In particular, he wants JFK to leave Berlin. He wants the Americans to leave West Berlin. And so basically in Vienna, Khrushchev starts digging into, um, digging into Kennedy, telling him, hey, you should leave, we, you should you know, let us go out. And then Kennedy refuses. Kennedy refuses. And when Kennedy refuses, go over one side, you know it, the symbol of the Cold War. Uh, he respond, Khrushchev responds by erecting the Berlin Wall. Basically, literally putting a wall in the center of the town of Berlin, uh, dividing east and west Berlin. 
and basically saying you can't go through this wall without like a ton of checkpoints and most individuals were never allowed to cross that wall. And this wall becomes a symbol for the Cold War itself. It's probably the most famous Cold War symbol and really demonstrates the lack of resolution from World War II. I mean, the Cold War is its own conflict between the United States and Russia. But as we talked about earlier, there are some, there's a lot of residual stuff from World War II. And the fact that there is a divided Germany, it demonstrates that we have not solved World War II yet. And also there's a lot of contention going on. And it really divides Germany and, and keeps Germany occupied for the foreseeable future. Uh, you know, whenever I was a kid, there was East and West Germany. I was born in 1984. Granted, they unified whenever I was five, but I still remember Olympic Games where you have East and West Germany, which was, I thought was the norm. I guess I was very observant for a four-year-old because that would have been one of the few Olympic Games where they would have had uh, before while I was alive. But still, I remember East and West Germany being a separate entity. And so this really becomes a symbol for the Cold War I mean, yes, theoretically, it's just a wall in one city and one country, but it can mean so much more. We can think of other symbols like that. Tons of other symbols, how like, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think of one that's not depressing, but like, you know, maybe a, an unpainted room in your house could be a demonstrative of a bad marriage between your parents. Wow, that was really grim. Um <laughs> <laughs> maybe say something uh, in your in your written responses about another example of this. Yeesh, I can't say anything off the top of my head. But but you understand. The idea that you know this one small thing is, can theoretically be on its own, but it's actually representative of something much, much larger. Now, as though Germany wasn't bad enough, if you go one more slide, uh, Cuba's having problems on its well. Uh, Cuba, if you're unfamiliar with Cuba, Cuba is the largest island in the Caribbean. It's about 90 miles south uh, at its closest point from the United States. Uh, the tip of the Florida Keys and the tip of Cuba are about 90 miles apart, but they're still pretty close. They're still pretty close, only 100 or so miles apart from each other. The U.S. has long had interest in Cuba. Um, there was talk for the longest time in the 19th century about maybe making Cuba a state. Um, we, we didn't. That probably would have solved a lot of problems, frankly. But uh, instead, Wash uh, Washington had been supporting a, a various slew of Cuban um, rulers. I'll use the term dictators. Pretty much since the Spanish-American War, which was in the early 20th century. The last real dictator that Cuba has is the dude on the left by the name of Batista. Uh, Batista is not a very nice person. Uh, the only reason that Washington supports him is... Once again, the anti-communist thing, which seems to be a uh, recurring trend. And also, there's a lot of U.S. businesses that have deals with the Cuban government uh, for Cuban resources. Uh, that's the one way that the U.S. justifies not having Cuba as a state, is that pretty much it forces Cuba to be compliant to pretty much anything American companies want. Uh, this breeds a lot of resentment, particularly when Batista and his ilk are you know, skimming off the top. And also, it's only natural that the people who are being uh, brutalized in Cuba are taken over. Well, not take. Well, I, I'll say taken over. Whatever, he's dead. Uh, <laughs> by Fidel Castro. Uh, if you go over one more slide, you're going to see the two guys who take over Cuba. That'd be Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. Uh, che Guevara doesn't stay in Cuba very long. He goes off to like do other communist uh, uprisings. He's ultimately killed. 
However, Castro stays in for forever. Uh, Castro dies relatively recently. Castro died only relatively recently. And his brother Raul is still the head of Cuba. But pretty much Castro is the head of Cuba. He takes over Batista, has a violent overthrow. Tons of Cubans flee. A lot of Cubans flee to South Florida. Others stay in Cuba and, you know, kind of deal with this new communist government. And Castro is not very well liked, particularly by the CIA. Uh, The CIA was trying to kill Castro left and right. Uh, Some of these assassination attempts have been very recently um, declassified. Uh, The CIA, some of the earliest stuff from the CIA has recently been declassified. Uh, I wouldn't recommend you read it because a lot of it's kind of boring. But um, I like reading it because I'm a history nerd. And so you will read about all these really almost Looney Tunes, like comical, like what are these CIA people thinking? Uh, Ways to try to assassinate um, Castro. Like even... I'm not even joking. Some of them were even like an exploding cigar. Like, we're going to put explosives on a cigar, and then when Castro lights it, he blows up. Like, I swear to gosh, I've seen I've seen Bugs Bunny do that one to Elmer Fudd several times. Still, there is limited success within the CIA, and so they try another plan. They try another plan that's initiated under Eisenhower. Because remember, Eisenhower is cool with using the CIA, cool with all sorts of, you know, wet work, uh, you know, underhand assassinations, that sort of thing. Basically, what they want to do, if you go over one more slide, uh, they want to go to Cuba by taking Cuban refugees. They want to take Cubans who had fled from Cuba to South Florida, kind of make an army out of them, give them some training, give them some CIA training, and, uh, you know, make them to like a little militia, send them to Cuba, and then basically uh, they are going to take over the... Castro government, reestablish a new government, and guess what? America's got our ally back, and we have no communists so close to the United States. Now, this, as I said, was started before JFK was president, but he was aware of it. He was aware of it whenever he became president, that the CIA was planning all sorts of stuff at for the Bay of Pigs. Uh, by the way, the Bay of Pigs is literally a bay in Cuba called the Bay of Pigs. That's where the uh, invasion was going to happen basically where they were going to send the Cuban refugees, Cuban exiles over to try to take out the uh, Castro's government. However, uh, the CIA wants uh, Kennedy to commit to using U.S. Navy. He's like, look, this is not... uh, The CIA tells him, look, you need to use the U.S. Navy as, like, backup, like, you know, have them as being support fire if need be, because if they don't have... It's just a comical land invasion, and if we don't have the Navy to support us... It might go very badly very quick. Uh, Kennedy never agrees to use the Navy. He says it pretty much sends the wrong issue, wrong, wrong uh, sorry, it, it sends the wrong message. It's a bit more aggressive than, it, than he wants to be for Castro. Uh, might look bad with the Russians as well. And so it goes from bad to worse pretty quickly. Uh, first of all, Castro had spies throughout the Cuban exile community in South Florida. So, like, Castro knew this was coming. This was not going to be a surprise. He knew when it was coming. It knew, he knew where it was coming. He could not have known any more about the Bay of Pigs, you know, invasion because he, he, he knew everything about this. And so when the invasion ultimately comes, you know, when the Cuban exiles ultimately do get to the Bay of Pigs, he's waiting. And also, it really exposed the U.S.'s role in what should have been a secret operation. Uh, Castro very, very blatantly is like, look, there's this attempted coup on me. 
And by the way, the U.S. was totally behind it. And like now, the U.S. looks crazy inept. The U.S. looks crazy inept. I mean, we have a communist country that's nothing, a fraction. It's it's literally one fiftieth of the size of the United States in terms of size of population. And yet now we can't take out this country, a country that's so close that's right next to the United States. We can't take it out. We we look totally inept. It looks like you know the the, the Three Stooges trying to do an invasion. And to make matters even worse, after the U.S.'s involvement comes out, Castro makes overtures to Russia. He's like, hey, USSR, hey, Soviet Union, uh, I need your help because we got the crazy Americans who are going to try to take me over. So could you give us some protection? And then Khrushchev's like, yeah, I'll happily give you protection because that's going to be a great way to kind of humiliate the uh, United States. So if you go over one slide, you're going to see the brand new allies of Khrushchev and Fidel Castro. They're now allies because, frankly, they both get something out of this. Uh, Cuba gets protection from the United States because the Russians are going to help them out. And Russia gets a way to humiliate the Americans as part of the Cold War. And as part of this defense, as part of this protection strategy... As you will see, if you go over one more slide, nuclear missiles were installed in Cuba. That is pretty much part of this protection, is the Russians send nuclear missiles to Cuba. Now, JFK could have dealt with this quietly. JFK could have dealt with this quietly. He probably should have dealt with this quietly. They knew that there are nuclear missiles that close to the United States. Is you know That's, that's kind of ominous. Problem is that it already started to leak in the press. All right, and it started already leaking to the press, and his denying of it uh, makes him look even more and more inept. It makes him look more and more inept. And so basically, JFK announces to the world, "Hey, Cuba's got nuclear missiles. Cuba's got nuclear missiles." Which uh, that's a nice how do you do for the uh, for the country. First thing in the morning is to find out that hey, this tiny country really close to us. I mean, if you look at that map, you will see that the distance from Havana to Miami is like 200 miles, uh, much closer in other places, much, much, much closer in other places. And by the way, this map uh, is nice, but uh, some of it is just total malarkey. Like, there's no way the Cuban missiles would have ever hit anything on the western seaboard. Um, even D.C. was a bit of a long range. Uh, likewise, uh, the Russians had much better ways of bombing the United States with nuclear weapons if they really wanted to, such as airplanes, which were a lot more accurate and a lot better, and the technology was much, much, much better. But still, you don't want to admit that. I mean, it's still bad that there's nuclear missiles. Uh, I'm not denying the fact that nuclear missiles are bad. And so for about two weeks, um, everybody thought we are going to go to war. Uh, for, for about two weeks, this is about as close as the country gets to having all-out nuclear war between the Russians and the Americans. If it was going to happen, it would have happened here, just basically because the, the tensions were rising. Also, don't, make, don't get it twisted. The United States has tons of nuclear weapons itself. In fact, the United States always had way more nuclear weapons than the Russians ever did. But still, the idea of using it and, you know, what's going to happen, who's going to respond to that, you know, what all's going to be blown up, are we going to start having nuclear-assured destruction? It's, it gets really, you know, really tense for a while. Um, I've mentioned before, both my parents were born in 1950, so in 1963, when this happens, sorry, 1962, when this happens, 
Uh, they're about 12 years old. They're, they're about 12 years old. And I remember talking to my parents about this. My mom has since passed away, but my dad, I, I talked to very recently about this. And uh, he was like, yeah, we thought we were going to die. He was like, straight up. He was like, um, I thought I was going to die. Because uh, he grew up in Shreveport, which is right next to Barksdale Air Force Base in Bossier City, if you're unfamiliar with batter, uh, Louisiana geography. And Bossier City is where uh, the, B the B-2 bombers are held. And so basically he's like, yeah, I knew that the, so that the Soviets would probably target Shreveport because it was a close enough target to Cuba. And that's a major Air Force base for where we keep our own bombers. So he thought he was going to die, you know, for, for a couple weeks when he was 12. I mean, can, can you imagine that existential dread of being 12, 12 years old, thinking you're going to die? He was like, yeah, we did like nuclear missile drills at school, nuclear bomb drills, which he said were kind of stupid. He was like, you know, the, the the moms would pick us up and would carpool and like we'd drive out to the to the um, you know the, the the farm outside the 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 cane fields outside of Shreveport and he was like, even as twelve I knew like if there was a nuclear weapon we'd all be dead we just can't outdrive them after like okay you know there was a bomb so let's drive away still it's as close as we ever get to full all out nuclear war uh, to stop the Russians from coming. Uh, basically, the Russians were bringing in boats to uh, resupply the Cubans. Uh, the U.S. implements a quote-unquote quarantine, basically saying, hey, we're, we're going to forget, we're going to prevent the Russians from going uh, under a quarantine. That's not really what stops it. What really stops it is a ton of negotiations. Uh, there is a ton of negotiations going on behind the scenes. As I mentioned, the Soviets don't want a nuclear war themselves because they know they have way less nuclear weapons than the Americans do. But they do want to save face. They want to save face. They don't want to be like, hey, we backed down from a nuclear war because we knew, I mean, okay, it is mutually assured destruction, but they knew that America had way more bombs than they did. So what, it, so what the Americans do to quote-unquote save face for the Russians is we give up some uh, missile sites in Turkey. Uh, there were some nuclear missile sites which were actually outdated in Turkey, and basically the U.S. didn't feel they had strategic value anymore. The Russians didn't necessarily know that, and so basically the Russians were like, look, Turkey's kind of close to the Russia, to the Russia, to the Soviet Union. If you can pull them out, we'll pull them out of Cuba. Also, they agree maybe we should have a way of communicating a bit better. Uh, this is where the infamous red phone comes from in the White House. Uh, for the longest time in the White House. They had a red phone. If you pick it up, it goes straight to the premier of Russia. So Kennedy does save face from this. Khrushchev does not. This pretty much uh, ends Khrushchev's political career in the Soviet Union. Uh, he's kicked out of office about 18 months later. Uh, pretty much he's, he's viewed by the rest of the Russians for uh, submitting to the, to the Americans, for wussing out, however you want to call it. Basically, he pulls out. He's pretty much politically dead. And also, JFK is going to be, like, actually dead about a year after this. Because this is where we get to November 2nd, 1963. Now, this is one of those days in U.S. history where if you were alive during this time period, you knew exactly where you are. It's up there with 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. Uh, Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas. That is, uh, that is, that is what happens. Um, why is he in Dallas? Well, election is coming up in 1964. He's trying to shore up Southern support. Um, he is not too popular in the South. He's never been very popular in the South, mainly because of civil rights issues. I didn't mention this because we I mean, talked about his foreign policy. 
But uh, Kennedy is... He is interested in civil rights. He wants to do more for civil rights. The problem is he's kind of wishy-washy on civil rights. Doesn't want to press too hard because he can't get his own party to get along with it because, remember, uh, Southern Democrats are the ones who are in charge of segregation and they're also part of his party. Meanwhile, civil rights people like Dr. King are kind of frustrated with Kennedy because they don't feel he's doing enough. But still, he's not very popular in the South for what he does for civil rights. Kennedy does a lot for civil rights, granted, not enough for some people, too much for other people. He is losing support of the South. And so basically, he is going to Texas at the behest of Johnson to really shore up support, kind of a, you know, reaffirm to the South that I'm, you know, I'm a good guy, I'm worth it, you know, don't, don't split the party, that sort of thing. Now, I will give you the facts, and then we'll get into the wacky conspiracies because I know you want it. Okay, so who assassinates him? The guy who assassinates Kennedy is a dude by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald is a weird individual. He is a weird individual, uh, just no way to, no other way to put it. He, he's just a weird individual. Uh, he had been a Marine. He had been a Marine. In fact, he was a, a sharpshooter. He, was a, he, he got very high scores in rifling. However, he defects to the Soviet Union. He defects to the Soviet Union pretty much saying, I don't believe in America, I want to go to the Soviet Union. So he's in the Soviet Union for a very short time, and then he's sent back. Uh, the Soviet Union don't like him. The Soviet Union, I think they think he might be a spy, or they just think he's too wishy-washy or weird. So the Soviet Union actually sends him back. He hangs out in Mexico City for a while. He's actually in New Orleans for quite a while, too. Before he ends up in Dallas, takes a job at a school book depository in downtown Dallas, which is where he has his rifle, where he shoots Kennedy. All right, now those are the facts. If you want the crazy conspiracies, I can give them to you. Okay, here we go. Uh, when we talk about the Kennedy assassination, there are several groups that are often blamed for doing it. Several groups that are often blamed for doing it. I'm going to go through the various groups, and I'm going to tell you why that probably didn't happen. Um, very common one, a very common group that is blamed in conspiracy theories is the Cubans. Uh, basically, the idea is Castro is in response to uh, the Bay of Kit Pigs fiasco. <clears throat> the, the Cubans, uh, there, there are some ties between the Cubans and New Orleans. They have some Cuban agents and New Orleans agents kind of mixing in with each other in the various places. So perhaps Castro, you know, gets this guy or gets this dude as a fall guy to, to shoot Kennedy and basically as payback for the Bay of Pigs. Why that probably doesn't happen? Well, we've had recently declassified documents from the Cubans, which show after the Kennedy assassination, the Cubans are freaking out. Like the Cuban government, even up to Castro, is like, oh my God, what if the Americans think we did this? Oh my God, they're going to invade us. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. They're going to spend the actual military, not just refugees with rifles who've had like a couple months of CIA training. Oh, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. So if they have assassinated Kennedy, you think Castro would not be freaking out as much. Uh, like I said, these are like very top, they were top secret upper levels of the Cuban doc government. These were only recently published, like declassified in the past five years or so, so... That probably didn't happen. Uh, the second group that is blamed is the Russians. Uh, once again, maybe it's payback for the Cuban Missile Crisis. Maybe they just want to humiliate them. Uh, maybe they think that uh, Kennedy is, uh, you know, being too much of a hard ass on them. 
why this probably didn't happen. Uh, Kennedy was not viewed as a hard ass on the Russians. The Russians, they felt that they could deal with him. Uh, the only reason that Khrushchev was kind of kicked out was because of how weak he was individually. Uh, they, they felt that Kennedy was actually somewhat compliable. They didn't feel that... They certainly didn't feel that Johnson would be a better person to, uh, to negotiate with. And likewise, uh, similarly declassified documents from the Russians have also showed them too freaking out about, oh my God, what do they think we did this? Oh God, oh God, they're going to bomb us. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So once again, they probably didn't do that. Uh, third group is the mafia. The mafia. This goes with the 1960s, uh, 1960 election. Uh, basically, there was a mob boss in Illinois, in Chicago, who claimed that he got Kennedy his uh, his votes for, for the 1960 election, and then he felt that Kennedy wasn't, uh, I don't know, respectful enough or, or grat- grateful enough to this mob boss guy. Also, he was upset that Kennedy slept with his, uh, with his mistress. Uh, why this probably didn't happen is, number one, this mob boss in particular actually seemed to like Kennedy and, like, bragged about it and was actually kind of <laughs> he liked the idea that his mistress had slept with Kennedy uh, there's no other way to put it he was like oh hey it's whatever he's got great taste and that sort of thing also there's really not much that he can respond you know, anything to get out of it um, and, 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 and yeah mob people talk all the time claiming credit for something they didn't do so that one seems unlikely uh, the third one, the fourth one is Johnson, Lyndon Johnson. He's also blamed for reasons that make even less sense. Why he didn't do it, it really makes no sense for Johnson to do it. What does he have to, what does he have to gain? Uh, what probably happened is Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy, and conspiracy theories are often coping mechanisms. Now, is there some weird stuff? Absolutely. Do people see things like during the fog of war or, you know, during a time of chaos where like, oh, maybe there's another pope behind the, uh, behind the grassy knoll? Sure. You know, can ballistics be uh, messed up? Absolutely. You know, maybe they didn't get the timing right or the bullet track right. Why not? Uh, but more than likely, it was just um, Oswald by himself. That said, if you want if you want a free conspiracy theory, if you want one you probably haven't heard of, I'll give you a new one. Um, you know who was also in Dallas that day giving a speech at a, like an appliance salesman convention? Nixon. Nixon was in Dallas the same day as the Kennedy assassination, giving a speech to a convention. So throw that one out there for you. Maybe maybe Nixon was getting revenge. So Oswald is, is apprehended very quickly. He's arrested shortly after the assassination. About two days after that, he is uh, walking home. Not walking home. He's walking out of the police station with uh, with a police escort. And basically, this is live on television. A television camera crew is there. And they ask him, you know, well, how, they ask him something like, you know, how are you being treated sort of thing. And right as Oswald's starting to answer, a uh, nightclub owner by the name of Jack Ruby, I believe his full name is Jack Rubowitz, Jewish nightclub owner who apparently was a big Kennedy fan, uh, comes out of nowhere and basically assassinates Oswald. Kills him pretty much instantaneously. Uh, plugs him, does a couple shots. This is live on television. This is a live murder on television. Uh, you can see this famous photograph of basically uh, Oswald getting shot by Jack Ruby. In fact, the, the, the dude in the white suit and the hat, he just died. He was, a, he was a Texas state trooper, and he just died. He just died. 
So now that the president's dead of who becomes president is Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Lyndon Johnson is now president, and uh, as you can see right there, there he is being sworn in on Air Force One. Uh, he is now president of the United States, and uh, this is kind of a baffling president. This is The fact that he is now president is a very uh, baffling thing to happen. If you go over one slide, let's talk a little bit about uh, Johnson's background. There's MLBJ. Uh, the South is the basis of power for the Democratic Party. The South is the basis of power for the Democratic Party, but it's not really making up a lot of leaders from the region, okay? A lot of presidents, most presidents don't come from the South. Uh, even though the Democratic Party is, you know, headquartered in the South, the leadership is really not that Southern. Now, Johnson himself is a walking, talking stereotype. If you ever hear uh, Johnson talking, he is a walking, talking Texas stereotype. I mean, everything you can imagine about Texas, that is embodied in Johnson. He's big. He likes steak. He likes wearing a big hat, that sort of thing, very much within his wheelhouse. But he's also a diehard New Dealer. If you go over one more slide, you will see young Johnson with Franklin Roosevelt. You're going to see young Lyndon Johnson with, uh, with Franklin Roosevelt. He is a diehard New Dealer. Um, and he also comes from actually relatively low middle, low middle class, like lower middle class family. Um, his family is somewhat political. His dad was a state senator for, uh, for Texas state Senate. So in Austin, not in DC, but he's still seen as very much a, a lower end of the, uh, of the social spectrum. Uh, likewise, he, he doesn't go to a big-name college. He goes to a, a teacher's college in, in Texas, which is, you know, not nothing against teachers. I mean, hell, I'm a teacher. My wife's a teacher. But um, it's, it's not Harvard or Yale or anything. It's not some, like, crazy elite institution. Uh, he's a working-class guy, mi middle-class guy. In fact, his first job as a teacher is teaching migrant workers, teaching the children of migrant workers, and he has a real soft spot for him, um, which is really interesting. Like, he's very good at playing the role of the big hat Texan, you know, eat a steak and wear boots and, you know, glad hand people and do all sorts of Texas stuff. But he's also very dedicated to liberalism and racial equality. Now, is he a complex figure for racial equality? Absolutely. I, I, I you know... Racial equality in the 1960s does not look like racial equality in the 2020s, okay? There, there's, there's no comparison. I mean, you know, Johnson, for instance, you would use the N-word, absolutely. He did use the N-word, but he was a Texan from, <laughs> from the South in, like, the 40s and 50s and 30s. But he's also weirdly dedicated to racial equality. Like, he is, um, he's, he's politically powerful, but he's... He's often seen as kind of abrasive on the national stage. As senator, he's known for giving what's known as the treatment. What's known as the treatment, where he basically uses his body. He is <coughs> he is very physically imposing. He's about six foot four, six foot three. You know, two hundred and something pounds of, of not necessarily fat, but just largeness. And he would like physically intimidate other senators into doing what he wants and. He often has a pretty high opinion of himself. Um, there's a very, you know, very, very funny story. I mean, the guy is the guy is hilarious too. I should mention that. Uh, in 1960, 
uh, whenever it's Slimington and JFK and LBJ all going up for the Democratic nomination. There's this anecdote where basically um, Kennedy Kennedy tells Slimington, like, hey, you know, I, I had this dream the other night that, uh, you know, God came down and, and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, don't worry about the, this 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 primary season because you're going to be the president for the, you're going to be the Democratic nominee, you're going to be the Democratic nominee. And, and Stuart Simington's like, huh? That's, that's also kind of funny because I had a dream the other night that uh, God came down to me, and he told me, you know, don't worry about it. Tap someone on the shoulder and says, don't worry about it. You're going to be the Democratic Democratic nominee and ultimate president of the United States. And they're like, huh? It's interesting. So they go to Johnson, and you know, they tell the story to Johnson, and Johnson's like, huh? That's funny because I can't for the life of me remember tapping either of you on the shoulder and telling you that you're going to become Democratic nominee of the pro- for the president. Yeah, kind of a complex, God complex, kind of funny. Like I said, Johnson, he loved to harass um, reporters. He would take calls while he's on the toilet. He had a special phone on the toilet so he could uh, call them. Uh, he would Whenever he was driving around his ranch, um, Outside of Austin, while president, he had an aquatic car, but he wouldn't tell them it was aquatic. So he'd like drive in and be like, "Ah, no brakes, no brakes," and go straight into the lake and freak them all out. Uh, just the interesting individual Johnson was. Absolutely, I should mention his wife. If you go over one more, you will see his wife. Um, his wife was Lady Bird Johnson. Um, she had a real name. Nobody ever called it by her. Everybody called her Lady Bird. She got the nickname of Lady Bird when she was like three days old, and everybody called her Lady Bird. She comes from a much higher political strata than Johnson does, much higher social strata than, than he does. Uh, John, Johnson, as I said, he is, he is lower class, lower middle class, uh, you know, kind of a rough and tumble guy, goes to, uh, you know, kind of a, a teacher school, which nothing wrong with teachers, but it's not an elite school. Uh, you know, really works his way up from the New Deal. Uh, Lady Bird Johnson comes from Texas royalty. She comes from Texas royalty. She is one of the first women. She might be the first woman, but she's definitely one of the first women to go to UT Austin and, you know, go to the University of Texas in Austin, very prestigious school. Uh, she is, you know, got the money. She's got the glamour. She is way outside of his league, way outside of his league. And pretty much he marries her for the, I mean, he loves her. He, he does love her, but also there's a social elevation part of it. There is a social elevation part of it. Uh, that being said, I mean, I don't know. I told you that Kennedy cheated on his wife. I'll tell you that Johnson also cheats on Lady Bird. Um, not as glamorous as Kennedy does. Like, Kennedy cheats on his wife with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Lyndon Johnson has other mistresses. Probably the most interesting thing you could ever hear, uh, the most interesting thing you could ever hear, this is legit, uh, is about a week or so after Kennedy is assassinated, After a week or so after Kennedy is assassinated, um... Jacqueline Kennedy, you know, Kennedy's widow, calls Johnson just to, like, you know, be like, hey, how's it going? And, you know, offer any services she might need as, you know, like, if you need any help now that you're president, you know, getting legitimacy or doing stuff in the White House, I'd be happy to help you out, whatever. And he was like, well, you know, and by the way, I'll help you out with anything you might need because, you know, your, your kids might need a father figure and I'd be happy to be your, their father figure. You know, the, you don't feel any rush to leave the White House. You, you can stay there as long as you need, what have you. And then, guys, I kid you not, he starts hitting on her, like, hard. Like, and by the way, if you need a daddy, too, I'd be happy to help you out. <laughs> like, it's the most awkward thing you've ever heard in your life. But that's Lyndon Johnson for you. You go one more slide. 
You will see the picture that I think best embodies Lyndon Johnson as vice president. You can see him yelling at somebody, probably cursing him out, and Kennedy trying to hold him back. But Johnson desperately wanted the presidency. Johnson desperately wanted the presidency. He felt that he could do the New Deal his way. He felt that he could make this huge change for society. He's very, like, very interesting in that he believes he can make a new society, this new version of society later calls it the Great Society, really changed things up for the poor. He thinks he could do it, but he gets it in an especially bad time. Because, as you can see, if you go over one more slide, free at last, question mark? Yeah. Johnson really wants to do something for the poor. In fact, he wants to do a lot of some things. Like I said, he wanted to make his own New Deal, you know, version LBJ. The problem is he has to go up against his own party. He has to go up against his own party because the Democrats are the ones who are really resisting it. Um, Republicans are kind of ambivalent towards it, but the Democrats are ironically the ones who are really supporting it and also opposing it. Northern Democrats tend to support uh, civil rights legislation and all this other stuff. Uh, the Democrats in the South tend to oppose it. The first thing he does, though, is he needs to get, the, get some things passed. And he really uses, if you go over one slide, the memory of Kennedy. He uses the memory of Kennedy a lot. Uh, apparently, he comes with the Civil Rights Act. Uh, he passes the Civil Rights Act of 1946. I mean, remember, Congress passes it, but he heavily uses Kennedy's memory to get it passed. Heavily, 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 heavily uses Kennedy's memory to get it passed. Uh, same thing with the Voting, Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, both of which have been hailed as very good pieces of legislation. Uh, both of which were hailed as very, very good pieces of legislation. Uh, they're, they're still held as that, but they still had to overcome a lot of resistance. They had to overcome a lot of resistance, mainly from Southern politicians in the Democratic Party. And in doing so, Johnson actually kind of becomes a martyr because he uses every favor, every political trick he's learned over his time in the Senate to get it passed. You know, he, he does this. He, he pretty much calls in every favor he has with Southern politicians to get this passed. To get it passed, he, you know, he calls in every favor, does every you know, trick, every physical intimidation, whatever it takes. You know, he uses Kennedy's legacy, even though it's mainly his, his pet issue. Uh, Kennedy, remember, is kind of meh, lukewarm, wishy-washy in civil rights. This is Johnson's effort, but he's only able to get it passed because of Kennedy's memory. And whenever this is passed, particularly after the Civil Rights Act is passed in 64, he says in a moment of just kind of, you know, reflection, you know, we probably just gave the South to the Republican Party for a very, very long time to come. And he's absolutely right. Um, <laughs> the South uh, nowadays is pretty much solidly Republican, and the, the shift in demographics, the shift in voting preferences happens there. You might hear people talk about party switching or maybe party, parties didn't switch. Uh, that's way too simplistic of looking at it. Parties generally don't switch, particularly party members don't switch because uh, there's things of seniority and things. However, it's undeniable that uh, more Republicans get elected in the South and they get so not really by campaigning against civil rights, that's still seen as kind of poison to do, but by talking about things like smaller government, uh, other other issues, and basically saying, hey, you know, we're not against civil rights, but we don't think the federal government should have that much authority to like really enforce it on such a small level. That's how they get around it. 
But the thing for Johnson is that's just the beginning. Johnson wants that only to be the beginning. Uh, he proposes a new program he calls the Great Society. It's his own version of the New Deal. Now, it plans to end all injustices, all right? This is very idealistic, very post-war liberalism, very much in that same vein of things like the Marshall Plan, where the idea is we, ha we, we can solve these problems, we just need to throw enough money at it. All right, and he wants to do this from a position of strength, not weakness, like the New Deal. You know, he said the New Deal came from weakness. It came from the fact that the economy was very weak and we need to make all these changes so that our society wouldn't crumble apart. Now he's saying the United States is super wealthy, we're super powerful, and we, we can make all these great changes from a place of strength. So what does he want to do? He wants to get rid of pollution. He wants to improve education, give housing a guaranteed income, all sorts of things that he wants to change and bring in for the United States, and basically doing it from the largesse of American society. Do it from the largesse of the American economy. He says that basically our economy is so good, we can afford this. You know, we can tax corporations, tax rich people. Which, by the way, taxes are actually fairly high already on rich people from the 50s, but so it's getting even higher. Uh, especially things like, you know, giving housing and a guaranteed income to people. Uh, that is very controversial. Now, some of these things do get passed. Um, you know, we have Social Security, which is... Well, Social Security already existed, but, you know, uh, other things like housing projects, um, Medicare, Medicaid, helping out with health care, things like that. He expands Social Security, absolutely. But to do this, he wants to raise taxes, increase spending. That's something that Republicans have never particularly liked. And that's really demonstrated by the Republican who runs against uh, Johnson in 1964, Barry Goldwater. Uh, Johnson is finishing out Link, uh, Lincoln, Kennedy's first term in 64, whenever the Civil Rights Act is passed. The Voting Rights Act, he gets passed in 65. But he, he's kind of seeing if, he, he sees a 64 election as kind of a, a, a referendum on him. He's like, you know, I, I spent the first year in spare change uh, doing Kennedy stuff because that's what Kennedy would have liked. But if, you know, if, if once it's 64 comes, I'm my own man, I'll see that the country really is with me. Now, Barry Goldwater is uh, from Arizona. He is super conservative, uh, very much at overreach. Uh, sorry, basically he says that uh, LBJ is doing overreach. He also has different rhetoric for the Cold War. Uh, he says, basically, we should talk about nuking the Russians, like straight up. He's like, we should nuke the Russians. We should, we should be more aggressive with the Russians. We should talk about defeating them, not just living with them. Talks about cutting spending. Uh, he opposes the Civil Rights Act, even though most Republicans support it. Uh, he opposes it from a government overreach stand. He's like, no, I'm for rights for African Americans, but it's not the federal government's role to, you know, to give these sort of things. Uh, which is kind of interesting that Goldwater votes against it. Uh, the, probably the most famous thing that happens in this election is a campaign ad that Johnson does. It only airs once. It's called the Daisy ad. I don't have it up on Moodle for some reason, but it's very easy to find on YouTube. And if you if you want to YouTube it, just, uh, you know, if you don't want to be spoiled, skip ahead a couple seconds. But if you don't want to spoil it, it's fine. Uh, basically, what happens in the ad is a, a, a girl is counting pedals. She's like, one, two, three, four. And then you hear 10, 9, 8, 7. And then a nuclear bomb goes off. And basically, John's like, ah, this, these are the stakes. Either we die or we live. 
And pretty much it's insinuating that if I lose the election, my opponent is going to make sure we're all nuked. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and so that is, that is the 64 election. Uh, Johnson does win. Johnson does win this election. Uh, Johnson does win. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see LBJ's blueprint. Uh, basically takes it as a very quick mandate. He's like, all right, cool. We need to have more things. He really expands to create society to include free preschool, uh, way more money for education, way more money for urban renewal, free medical care for the elderly and the poor. And he gets them. He gets them all. And they're, though they're viewed as expensive, they're very popular programs. Uh, still to this day, they're quite popular programs. People may not like uh, government uh, you know, spending, but uh, people tend to like you know, education and urban renewal and Medicare, Medicaid is very, very popular with uh, those who have it. And Johnson desperately wants to focus all of his time and energy on this. He, he really wants to uh, spend all of his time and energy on this. He really, 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 really wants to spend everything he has on this. Problem is he can't. Why can't he? Because Vietnam has gotten way too big. If you go over one more slide, you will see Vietnam, Nam, Johnson being kind of despondent as he looks over the figures. So trouble had been brewing in Vietnam for quite a while. Uh, in some ways, this is similar to what happens in Korea. In other ways, it's quite different. But there are some similarities. Uh, France had in, it kind of begins with decolonization, right? It begins with decolonization because France had colonized a region known as Indochina. Uh, Indochina is modern-day Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. But France was interested in leaving. After World War II, uh, France is going to get out of the colony game. They think it's too expensive. And so they're talking about maybe we will slowly pull out they don't want to get out too quickly from a place like Indochina because they think ah, it's going to fall apart really quickly. Maybe bad people are going to take it over. You know, it's not good for the citizens. However, um, in 1954, so this is a good bit earlier than, than Johnson. In 54, uh, the French have a battle at a place called Dien Bien Phu, which is in North Vietnam, with a man by the name of Ho Chi Minh. If you go over one slide, you will see a picture of Ho Chi Minh. Uh, Ho Chi Minh is the one on the left. Ho Chi Minh, often called Uncle Ho, uh, he is a rebel, he is a, he's a freedom fighter, and he's also communist. In some ways, he is somewhat similar to uh, Kim Il-sung in, in North Korea. However, um, Vietnam was not occupied by the, uh, by the Japanese, so you don't have the, like the, the reputation of being a freedom fighter against the Japanese like, uh, like Kim has. Instead, Ho Chi Minh is... He, he's mainly fighting against uh, colonialism and fighting against European influence, and he does so from a communist perspective. And so when France leaves, there's a power vacuum, and because there's a power vacuum, nature pours a vacuum, D um, Ho Chi Minh kind of steps in. He is nominally communist. He's communist in so much as it gives him uh, panache for his anti-colonialist, anti-European sentiment. Uh, he's not a hardcore communist, but he sees it as something that's going to help him fight against the Europeans. I should also mention he's not getting a ton of support from a place like Russia or China, really. So he kind of takes over North Vietnam, whereas South Vietnam is under the leadership of a U.S. puppet by the name of Diem. If you see there on the right, there is Diem. There's Nho Diem Diem. And Diem is... 
Once again, he's one of those not great dictator type people that the U.S. supports simply because he's anti-communist. And Diem does a lot of things that really doesn't make him mesh with the rest of the Vietnamese population. Uh, once again, kind of like the guy that the U.S. tried to prop up in um, South Korea, except Diem is a guy who is from Vietnam. He stays entirely in Vietnam. Thing is, though, he is Christian. He is Christian. He's Catholic. And the vast majority of people in Vietnam are not. They are Buddhist. And he starts doing things that really upset the Buddhist majority. Uh, they really start getting upset by the Buddhist majority, uh, particularly whenever Diem starts sending his soldiers into Buddhist temples to uh, start, you know, trying to get see if there's communists, and then kind of taking things from the altar, which, uh, like any church, there are valuable things on an altar. I mean, yes, there are religious artifacts, but there's also things of value. I mean... In a Catholic church, you know, there's the there's the the candlesticks and the you know and the offering plates and stuff's probably made out of real gold or real metal. It has real value, and so and and also it's the idea of sending soldiers into a church sanctuary is something that gets people kind of ticked off anyway. Uh, Diem's doing this. Basically, the Buddhist majority start protesting this, and in particular, some Buddhist monks start doing the ultimate form of protest against this. If you go over one more slide, uh, self immolation self immobilization uh, basically they uh, basically uh, a couple Buddhist monks would come out and be like hey my name is the Vietnamese version of John Smith I don't know um, whatever and uh, I, I'm a Buddhist monk and I'm here to protest what Diem's been doing to us uh, unfairly pour gasoline on themselves set themselves on fire and pretty much the whole idea is basically show that your devotion and not really respond, just kind of sit there while you get immobilized. Uh, this, the PR looks horrible for Diem and also looks really bad for the United States. While this is going on, it's actually JFK who's president. Um, actually, when this really starts going on, it's Eisenhower. And Eisenhower is the first to start sending military equipment and advisors over to Vietnam to help out as part of the whole Truman Doctrine, we'll support you with whatever it takes to go against communism. Uh, Kennedy is seeing, you know, Kennedy inherits this and he does not really care for Diem too much. He thinks Diem's kind of a headache and he tells the CIA, okay, guys, this is where we get into kind of conspiracy theory territory. The United States does not kill Diem. All right. It's a, it's a very, it's, it's a, it's a, not even an urban legend. It's a conspiracy theory that the CIA is the one who are behind the assassination of Diem. That is not what happens. What does happen is that Kennedy tells the CIA to tell Diem's generals that, hey, if there's a coup and like Diem is killed, the U.S. would not be upset about it. The idea being, you know, maybe Diem has generals who don't like what he's doing, remember, because he is upsetting the vast majority of the population, and a lot of his generals are Buddhists as well. And so basically, the U.S. JFK tells the CIA to tell Diem's generals if Diem were to die, we wouldn't be that upset. We wouldn't, like, come up against you. Now, is that the same thing as doing an assassination? No, but, you know, you're not completely innocent when something like that happens. Thing is, Diem is assassinated by his generals. There's a coup. He and his brother are killed in early November 1963. 
Uh, in early 19, in early November of 1963, uh, Diem is assassinated, and the generals surprisingly start kind of infighting almost immediately. And Kennedy hasn't really put into place who he wants instead because Kennedy's killed himself. So, hey, throw another conspiracy theory on the log. Maybe it's retribution from Diem. Maybe Diem has some relatives who wants to take him out. <laughs> so I so LBJ inherits a huge mess in Vietnam, and like I said. Eisenhower had already been sending materials to Vietnam. LBJ escalates this, num- this number thanks to the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. Uh, basically, this allows the president to do more war making and sending troops on their own. Uh, theoretically, in order to have war declared in the United States, it has to be done through Congress. However, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution uh, and other things pretty much have let the president send in troops theoretically on their own. We have not had to declare war in the United States since, gosh, World War II. Like, even Operation Desert Storm and the Iraq War, Afghanistan, they were all presidential actions. They were not declared wars. So why does LBJ do this? Why does LBJ make the effort, if you go over one more slide, you'll see U.S. soldiers in Vietnam. Why does he do this? Well, number one, he doesn't like communism. He, he doesn't like communism. He's not a big communist supporter. I mean, he's a... Uh, lowercase socialism supporter, post-war liberalism, we can spend all this money in in societal ills supporter. He doesn't like communism. Uh, Number two, he thinks it's going to be easy. He's like, look, this is a tiny little country. They've got bamboo sticks. This is going to be nothing. It's going to honor our commitment with South Vietnam. We promised South Vietnam, you know, Truman Doctrine, we're going to, we're going to help you do this. And, and also for him to pull out of a war would be for him to lose that political capital he desperately needs for the great society. He desperately needs political capital for the great society. And so if he were to pull out, he's afraid that people would not be willing to, uh, to, to deal with him. So now he's in Vietnam, and he hates it. And, and, and he learns early that staying the course is not going to end the war because the Viet Cong, which is the people in North Vietnam, uh, they're, they're not fighting traditional. Uh, they're doing a lot of hit and fade tactics. They're, you know, they're kind of, they're staying in North Vietnam, but they're also kind of going around, whereas the United States is only invited by North, by South Vietnam. And so they can't really take over North Vietnam because to do so would be to violate sovereignty and it would be an, declaration, it would be an act of war, which we did not have a declared war. It's this big hullabaloo about it. And so since, and, and, and because there's no DM to fill in the power vacuum in South Vietnam, he's mainly dealing with the Viet Cong and, yeah, the, the South Vietnam is kind of a mess. And so to kind of really amp this up, they begin Operation Rolling Thunder. If you go over one side, you'll see Operation Rolling Thunder. Uh, it basically drops a ton of bomb and napalm on the jungles. Uh, nuclear weapons are never really considered because they don't, it's kind of like Korea. They're not, they're not very feasible in terms of uh, strategic value. However, napalm and bombs are just dropped, and there are tons of bombs dropped. There are more bombs dropped in Vietnam than all of World War II, excluding nuclear bombs. But it feels like their hands are tied. It feels like the American soldiers' hands are tied. Uh, you often get the sense of frustration from the American soldiers, uh, from the U.S. commanders, that basically they, you know, they, can, they can get the Viet Cong, they'll get them all the way to the borders, and then they can't go any further. And they know that they're going to be going through. So in order to keep this going, they just keep sending in more troops. Sorry if my dogs are jerks. I cleared it up. They send in more troops just to keep the status quo. 
And the, and the Viet Cong realize this is going to be a war of attrition. They know that they're not going to win. They cannot defeat the United States head on. So instead they decide, basically, we're going to make this go as long as they can. Make it so the U.S. can't win. And basically, ultimately, they're going to run out of money and supplies and they're going to lose. But Johnson still doesn't believe we're going to lose this fight. He just thinks that we need to keep killing the Viet Cong. And I should also mention, although the war is unpopular later, at the time, the war is very popular. Uh, the American public, in general, supports this war early on. I mean, they, they turn on to news reports where they hear about all the tonnage of bombs dropped. They, talk, they hear about how many people are dying. How many, they hear about how hundreds of thousands of Viet Cong are being killed. And, you know, hearing about the tonnage, hearing about how bad it's going... And they think, okay, things are going fine. What changes everything, if you go over one more slide, is the Tet Offensive. Uh, the Tet Offensive is what changes everything. Uh, Tet is the new, uh, Vietnamese New Year, like Lunar New Year. Uh, it's a month-long holiday where generally people don't expect anything to happen. Uh, what does happen is a massive offensive from North Vietnam. What's a little bit different, though, is the fact that they go through what's known as a Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos and Cambodia. Basically, the Americans were told to stay within North, sorry, with, stay within South Vietnam. Don't go into North Vietnam. You know, try to kick the Viet Cong back. And then all of a sudden, the Viet Cong are coming through Laos and Cambodia, a place where the U.S. doesn't have like a ton of, you know, some, you know, they can't build up their military too much there because it would look threatening to Laos and Cambodia. And so the Viet Cong come through. They actually even take over Saigon for a short while this time period. They take over Saigon, which is the capital of South Vietnam. This really changes the tenor of the war. It's evident that the Viet Cong are not going away as quickly as they seemed. And this is where public opinion against the war starts to turn. Uh, now people are talking about this is, this is a waste. Uh, Johnson feels like he has to keep escalating. He feels the pullout would be to admit defeat. Um, the expense of the war is far more than its social programs. Like, it is comical how much more the war costs than all the social programs, even though the social programs are the ones that are being called out for being way too expensive. And this is actually really the end of idealism. This is actually really the end of idealism because Johnson, in 1968, he says, basically, I'm not going to run for president again. He's like, look, you know, this is evidence dividing the country. I need to focus upon ending the war and my social programs. So you know what? I'm not going to run for president. I need to focus just on this. And he really feels that it's the war that hampers him. And, and I will also say, honestly, the Vietnam War is the end of the idealism for a lot of different reasons. It really shows that this kind of post-war liberalism is not going to work. We just can't outspend our way from communism. And it's the idea that, you know, the U.S. has the ability to possibly solve some problems, but can we really solve all these problems? And it's really with Johnson that idealism really starts to die. Uh, you know, by the time we get to 1968, Johnson is a broken man. He doesn't really seem to believe as much in his idealism. He tries. Uh, he, he's, he dies shortly after he's, elect, um, he's out of office. He doesn't even run it for, for re-election again. And, you know, um, spoiler alert, in 68, Nixon wins. We'll get into that later. And honestly, next class, we're going back to talk about the very various um, civil rights movements and even how the civil rights movement kind of loses that idealism as well. Honestly, by the end of the 60s, this kind of idealistic, we can change the world, nonviolent, uh, you know, using wealth for good, um, it, it's, it's definitely gone. And, and it's really seen by Johnson. 
But I want you to think about that as you as you go over the assignments, as you as you watch the videos, reading the things, uh, just see how it's like this idealism has kind of gone down, especially when we talk about the written response. And the written response is basically talking about how the domestic aspirations are are impacted by international affairs. You know, can you consider the sixties to be Camelot if it looks great, but it seems to be undermined by every step? So. For that, that's Dr. Tully for History 327, telling you to have a good one.